Hello to all of you that are listening to this message today. My name is David Thompson, Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those of you that are new, I just briefly want to share with you that I am here seeking to speak out of the Spirit of God, God's Word, that it might enter the depths of your being to bring you to a place where if you are not already receptive to God, you are. If you are not already in a place of being blessable, you are that you may be blessed. There's a verse in Second Peter that says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. So I will speak as the oracles of God. I will seek to let the Spirit of God speak through me. This is only possible out of doing it in a consciousness of worship while I am speaking, of relationship and intimacy with God by His Spirit. As stated in Revelations chapter 19, the angel commands John and he says this, Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It is as we worship God that the spirit of prophecy flows through us and out of that comes what glorifies Christ or testifies of the truth, which is who God is. There are scriptures that say God is truth. So before I get into starting to share things here, I just want to explain that to facilitate allowing God to say what he would say to you as an individual who in this time has somehow in God's foreknowledge been allowed to hear this message and also to the body of Christ, I... cast lots before God to be led to the right particular chapter to share. Equal possibility that it can fall in any chapter in the Bible the way I do it. I don't do it as a game. If I did, it wouldn't work. I don't do it in irreverence, nor do I expect it to work if there's sin in my life. I am here to walk in holiness before God. And so I will share what the Holy Spirit would say to you and to the body of Christ from the chapters that I have received in the last few days. Usually I just spend, well, almost always, I spend about a half an hour in a chapter meditating on it and also writing notes in that same amount of time and then I immediately thereafter preach. Today I don't know what I'm going to get out of this chapter. It just doesn't seem like the kind of chapter where I could get anything to share from. But I'm not trying to get anything. I am trusting God to teach me even in the very moment as I am speaking to you with revelation. He promises 
that those that have his Holy Spirit of truth, that he will guide them into all truth. And so my prayer is that I will be guided into all truth this day, that you will be guided into the truth by revelation that sets us free from manipulation by the powers of evil that are not in the truth, that have corruption in them. When corruption is exposed in us, that allows the enemy to have those hooks in us, to deceive us and manipulate us with wrong motivations through the temporal things. It is then that we are truly in bondage and all the more so if we've ignored the truth. Today I received Luke chapter 4, so I want to share from this chapter and read it first. And if there are other places that the Holy Spirit would move me to speak from, that is fine. First, let us reach, read this chapter. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing and when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, all this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. Jesus answered, said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from thence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, it is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears, and all bear him witness. And wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of the truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, or Elijah, to for those that are a little less familiar, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land, but unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sephrata, a city of Zidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the Time of Elias the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him onto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way and came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. And in the synagogue there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil and cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him and hurt him not. And they were all amazed and spake among themselves, saying, what a word is this, for with authority and power he commandeth the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the fame of him went out into every place of the country round about. And he rose out of the synagogue and entered into Simon's house. And Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever and they besought him for her, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she arose and ministered unto them. Now when the sun was setting, 
All they that had any sick with divers diseases brought them unto him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And the devils also came out of many, crying out and saying, Thou art Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, suffered them not to speak, for they knew that he was Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desert place. And the people sought him and came unto him and stayed him that he should not depart from them. And he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. And he preached in the synagogues of Galilee. Just excuse me as I have a brief drink of water first. In this passage of scripture, we find in the chapter before that just before all of these events where Christ is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, that he was baptized by John the Baptist and there was the manifestation of the glory of God with that voice that sounded as thunder that said this, is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Or whatever, I believe it was similar to that. I'm not going to go back there and look at it. And there was the descending of the dove, or of the Holy Spirit coming upon him in power, in the shape or appearance of a dove. And the voice of the Father. And so we have in that background for this chapter, the glory of God being revealed in triunity of government, the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. I am not here to get into the teaching on that at this time. Although I have in-depth teaching on how God is one, not three, one God in triunity of government as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All I will mention is this. To those that falsely accuse Christians of believing in three gods. It is very clear that for God to be almighty and all-powerful, he must be in personage in the three ultimate aspects of existence, which are beyond the time and space realm, in the time and space realm, or the creation realm, and filling all space of existence. Those are the three ultimate dimensions of existence. And if God was not in personage in those three ultimate dimensions of existence, he would not be God. And so we have the Father. The Father 
speaks of the originator, for the word Father basically means originator. It also speaks of the one that is beyond time and space, that sees the end from the beginning, because the quality of the Father is one that has experience over a long period of time. So, God is in personage and government as the Father. And in Hebrews 1.3, it says that Jesus Christ is the full expression of the Father. In fact, Christ himself said, He that has seen me has seen the Father. And he wasn't talking about outwardly seeing him. This was a perception from the eye of the heart. He that is perceived who I am has also perceived who God is as the Father because he is the very expression of the Father into the time and space realm, because God must also govern in his creation to be almighty and all-powerful over it and to communicate with his creation. And the Holy Spirit, which descended as a dove upon Jesus Christ, is that aspect of God and personage that is omnipresent in his omniscience and omnipotence, attached to every particle of existence that he has created, filling all things. And also, that includes with the Father beyond time and space. And so, the word of God is true when it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. God is described as, in the Hebrew, another word for God is Elohim, which has the understanding of Almighty in the word El, and Elohim is plural. So it's saying the Almighty's one. And so we understand, as it says in Genesis 1, concerning God, God says this after he created when he's about to create man he says let us make man in our image the us is the plurality of government in the one true God Christ also appeared as a theophany before he came to the earth through incarnation he appeared in various scenes, such as Jacob wrestling with the angel, who would not give him his name because his name was the Almighty, one true God. His name, he said, could only be described as wonderful. Remember, the understanding of the word name is the expression of who one really is to someone else. And we have God appearing to Abraham in a theophany, which means the appearance of God in the time and space realm in a physical body form as the Son of God, because the word Son means expression. The Son of God, the expression of God the Father, the full expression of God is Jesus Christ. The full and only one expression of God is Jesus Christ. And in this passage in Luke 4, 
after the endowment of the power of God's Spirit coming upon him. It says, Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. In this case, it says led. In another one of the Gospels, it says driven by the Spirit. Christ, being God, knew his calling. And he knew the time of the implementation or the launching forth of his special commissioning into this world. And so he was ready for it in Luke chapter 3 and received that fullness of sanctioning by God through the manifestation of the Father in the thundering voice and of the Holy Spirit as a dove. That does not mean that he did not have the fullness of the Spirit before. For we read that even John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Ghost in the womb. And we read that Christ had, as a child, a deep, intimate relationship with God the Father. But this was the special charge, the special launching of the ship. the sealing of what was already so. To go forth into this world, Christ said that as the Father has sent me, so send I you. There are many of us that have as believers, wondered why our life seems so ordinary and plain. Why God hasn't visited us? Why he hasn't appeared to us as he's appeared to others and sent us with a clarion call, a clarity, a charge, an importation of power and of the gifts of the Spirit. But let us not be discouraged, for if we are seeking God in our lives and we are putting his kingdom first, and he is the priority that comes first in everything in our lives, then there is the hunger in our heart that continues to spur us on into relationship and intimacy with him, even though life may seem very plain and ordinary. And we have the examples of it in the patriarchs. Abraham 
was called of God out of an idolatrous family. He responded to the little truth he had, and God gave him more and more truth. To the point that he had the visitation of God's calling that called him to leave his family and his background and to go forth not knowing where he would go. There are many other examples of God's calling. Another is Joseph. Joseph, who was sold as a slave by his brothers. Here he had all these dreams that indicated God was going to really use him, and then he ends up being sold by his own family as a slave. The pain of what he went through, the pain of such rejection, thinking that his brothers, yeah, maybe they envied him a bit, but they must have still loved him and appreciated him and respected him. What a shock to discover they wanted to kill him. And the word of God goes on to describe Joseph. And it says, until in the book of Psalms, there's a verse concerning Joseph that says this, until his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. Until his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. And that is what is happening with many of us as believers. We are in the wilderness, so to speak, of tribulation. Where we are being tried. What does the word of God say? It says that his word is, is as silver that is refined seven times. So some of us can try to be prophets, but if we have not been put through the purification, his word will come out of us with some measure of purity, but not be totally pure. But there is a time when there is the visitation of God on those that are true prophets. Where are the trials that have gone on for decades that have been so difficult, purify us to the place where now there is such an identity in God, a oneness in God, an intimacy in God, and a deadness to the world through the shaking that had been going on in our lives for decades to undo the deceptions of identity and priority and other things other than God. So we've been purified from those deceptions of distraction, of static, of manipulation into relation with God that has no static. And so the word of God is pure because it's been purified seven times Seven, representing perfection. It has been purified through the trials to the point that there's no dross coming to the surface of the smelted gold so that one can now see that it is totally pure and even see the reflection of their face on the surface of that melted gold.
there's Elijah who was just plowing the oxen, going about the daily tasks of life. But in his heart, there was hunger for God. There was thirst for God. There was much time spent seeking God. And then there came the point where God visited him. And there was Elisha, and the same thing happened. And so he was willing to leave everything, and he burned his oxen that was his source of income and all of those things, and he went to be with Elijah. And we see many, we see this pattern over and over again, that it is the same pattern that we see here with Christ. Did Christ have to go through a dying to self? No, he was God manifest in the flesh. His is a little bit different situation. But the pattern we can still see, as I am describing in the examples of these patriarchs throughout time. We see it with Abraham. Abraham promised Isaac and nothing, and he's 99 years old. What a trial. It looks like God's forsaken him, like God isn't true, but he still trusted in God. He still believed, and yes, that resulted in breakthrough, the appearance of God. God came and visited Abraham in a theophany where Christ himself came in a physical body with two angels and talked with Abraham and Sarah and said that at 99 years old, they would have Isaac. Oh, Abraham could have easily given up and said, well, he did try to work it out on his own with Hagar, didn't he? And he got 13 years of trouble. But that was a process of a trial that he went through that forged a deep union with God in him because it was painful to go through the experience of having to give up Ishmael that came out of Hagar. But it was necessary for him to go through that painful process because it was part of the deception and the impurity in him at that time that allowed him to not, that caused him not to fully trust God to the point that he did not try to take his own, own self-initiations to fulfill what he believed God wanted to do, what he knew God wanted to do. So there is no lack of examples where we see the same basic principle. And here we see in Luke chapter 4, that Christ is driven into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. Before that time, he said, my time has not yet come to his mother. But he was always about his father's business, teaching in the synagogue, as we know the story, many of us. Here he's driven by the Spirit into the wilderness after experiencing the endowment of God's Spirit upon him, after being commissioned 
are launched into the special ministry that God had sent him to accomplish as God in the flesh on the earth. And he's exposed to temptation by the adversary, the devil. He didn't need anything. He ate nothing for 40 days in the wilderness with the wild beasts. Certainly there was a verification through the things he suffered. That he is indeed the very word, totally pure, totally full, in victory over all the outward temptations. And so there is this account of the devil tempting him. And the first temptation, after being hungry, and that would be a very great hunger after fasting for 40 days, the body starts to want to eat its own self up. And I'm sure that that would be an extreme hunger. And here the devil comes along and says, if you're the son of God, command this stone to be made bread. How does the Lord view this? He recognizes that he is not going to be doing something or initiating anything that finds its original initiation in evil, in this case, the devil himself. He is not led by outward suggestions and impressions, and he recognizes those suggestions and impressions and even visible manifestations of the devil. For he probably saw into the spiritual realm and refuses even though he has this terrible, ravenous hunger to command the stones to be made bread so that he can immediately eat and feel the relief of this physical suffering he's going through. Rather, he continues to just use the word of God and say, it is written, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. He recognizes that his life source is not dependent upon eating physical nourishment to relieve the suffering of his physical body, to bring comfort to the discomfort in his physical body. He recognizes that is not the true source of satisfaction and comfort. It only can comfort temporarily the outward physical shell. He recognizes that the true bread is abiding and eating 
of God the Father, reciprocating with God the Father in the Holy Spirit. He lives in his identity even more out of his relationship with God than he does, that is his relationship with God the Father in the Holy Spirit. He chooses to abide in that relationship instead of allowing an initiation to come out of, him, out of himself that is not out of that relationship and comes from this other source, which is the devil. He recognizes that the true bread that truly gives life, that truly gives satisfaction, is not found in the body that there is an abiding relationship with God that transcends all of that pain and suffering with greater reality, with greater satisfaction through enduring the outward pain in his physical shell at this point in time. And so the devil failed because he quoted the word of God that recognized his true life source of bread that is indeed bread, that indeed can also even spread out to satisfy and quicken the physical body when it is not whole, due to lack. And the devil taking him up into a high mountain showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. And to whomsoever I will give it, no, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. That's what the devil said. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. Oh, my. The temptation to have the immediate fulfillment of kingship, of inheritance that is not in God's planned time. By taking initiation ourselves, Oh, we could rationalize easy, couldn't we? You know what? All I have to do is go to a Bible school and get a bunch of degrees, and I can have my own church. I can have people look up to me. Really? Is that seeking the kingdom of God? If the motive is our own glory and our own security through being supported by people and doing something we enjoy. A lot of people enjoy being looked up to others and they enjoy preaching. It's a, it's a very creative thing. 
But where do those suggestions come from? See, Christ recognized the source was not from God. In this case, the devil's actually saying, bow down and worship the devil? I don't think the Lord's interested in seizing some immediate situation so that he can worship someone that he knows is evil. He recognized it was Satan, that it was the adversary, or he wouldn't have said, get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written. Yes, he quotes the word of God again. So here's a situation where we're to worship, and he says this, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. So it's a matter of having motives that are totally pure unto God. And if we had a motive that was for our own glory or some more immediate fulfillment of what we even want to do that seems genuine for God, then that motive would be impure and therefore would be self-worship and therefore would be worshiping through self, not God, but the enemy which has a hook and an attachment to all who fall into the same principle of rebellion that he fell into, where he sought to be his own God over God. He lost the fear of God. The devil lost the fear of God when he fell. He was in the direct stream of God's blessing and went against it. Unlike man that is tempted through indirect physical things, his was a direct resistance, a direct choice out of pride to actually believe that he could become equal with the source or above the source, which is God. I'm not here to dwell on that, but this was a losing of the fear of God. This was a choice to not fear God, because what is the fear of God? Without going into it in detail here, it is something I will be teaching in depth when I, my book is done on the fear of God. But without going into that, the fear of God involves a choice from the heart that is a deep turning from the heart. It is a choice, first of all, to recognize God in reality for who God really is. And that is to recognize that quality that is reality that is ultimately trustworthy. You see, God is reality. The Word of God says that his name is Jehovah, the self-existent one, Yahweh, the self-existent one. His name is I am that I am. Christ said, I am that I am. which is another way of saying I am the ultimate source of reality. If you look at a dictionary and you look at the word truth, it is defined as that which is real, basically, from various dictionaries. Then you look at the word reality or real, and you find it is that which is everlasting, indestructible, and immovable. The only quality that can be that 
must be ultimately trustworthy. And that quality is a love that is so pure and has such a purity of integrity that it is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest thought, word, or deed that would be contrary to it. That is the holiness of God. And there is an understanding that because of the holiness of God, there is judgment. There is consequences. And some, when they see the suffering all around them in this world because of rebellion against the holiness of God, can easily be tempted to be offended and to have offense in their heart towards God because they've lost sight of the holiness of God that only that quality can contain unlimited life and unlimited power without being corrupted by that unlimited life and power. In other words, this is indicative also that God is the very source of unlimited life and power that is contained in a quality of being that is so pure in love that it will not be corrupted by it, but can contain that in ultimate goodness that is ever enlarging and expanding in creativity to greater and greater realms of fulfillment. And what guards that is the integrity of God's love, his holiness. But people so often become like Cain. They begin to perceive God as an enigma, someone distant and afar off because they're offended at the consequences of whatever it is in their own lives and of the suffering around them, of the curse. So they begin to see God as holy in a distorted way that does not recognize that God is ultimately trustworthy, that there is goodness behind the holiness of God that requires judgment. And so with that offense, there is an idolatrous, distorted view of God a self-delusional misconception, idolatrous self-image of God. We can call him the one true God or whatever. We can even believe it's the God of the Bible. But I can tell you this, that a view of God that is demanding and holy and does not perceive his goodness means that you will want to do something out of your self-initiation to appease him, to make it feel like you're accepted by God. And so you begin to trust in your own efforts and in your own self-initiations And when that happens, the Ten Commandments become an idol because the focus is on the Ten Commandments rather than your relationship with God. And as a result, you are trusting really in yourself. And whatever you trust in is where you're putting your focus, your glory, and your worth. 
and obviously you're not trusting in God, when you are in that deceived state of misperception due to offense towards God that has caused God to be perceived as enigma and therefore distorted, so as a result, motivations are impure. They're coming out of one's own self-initiations. They can be so pure outwardly, seemingly, intellectually, but the motive is impure. In this passage of Scripture, we see that we are to only worship the Lord and not to bow to the temptations to worship any idol, whether it be the Ten Commandments or our own self-righteousness through various things that we think will make us acceptable to God, although we have failed to humble ourselves and allow our pride to be broken. You see, the fear of God is a choice to recognize God in his holiness is ultimately trustworthy. But it's more than that. When we really see that God is ultimately trustworthy in his holiness or in the integrity of his love, it causes us also to see that God is merciful. That his mercy transcends out of his holiness. That the foundation of holiness is the foundation for his creativity, which is ultimately expressed in his love to assure us forgiveness, which was known from the very time of Adam and Eve, that there's one God and that he has provided a way of forgiveness. Now they took an innocent lamb, which was a symbol of their sin being transferred onto that innocent lamb but it was very evident that they recognized that the source of forgiveness wasn't in the animal. It was in God himself. The word of God says, there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. And there are many verses. There are many passages that make it clear that they understood that this was their part kind of as a step towards God in repentance that is revealed particularly before Christ in animal sacrifice. Yes, they recognized that the physical animal sacrifice could cleanse the physical body and the physical realm, allowing the Spirit of God to dwell with them in communion. But they recognized the source of forgiveness was in God and that it implied that God, since he required judgment, ultimately must have in his being such a high purity, ultimate purity of love that he could actually become a perfect atoning sacrifice and suffer more than you, a mere creature, and humble himself more than you, a mere creature, to absorb judgment upon himself for your sin so that he would have the power to forgive you and to cleanse you and indeed, they recognized in that who God really was. It is only when God is recognized as ultimately trustworthy 
that we could possibly truly fear God. And that requires that there is the power for God to assure destiny to us, to his creation. If he could not assure destiny and purpose to creation, to have the choice to choose his mercy and to have destiny, it would imply that God was less than perfect. But there was always the perception from the very beginning of time, there was always the gospel, and that gospel is the holiness of God that is manifested in transcendence in his power to assure forgiveness to those that repent and receive his forgiveness that was ultimately manifested in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, that takes away the sin of the world as he's described by John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, just before this chapter. So when we're talking about worshiping God to overcome the temptation of impure motives, to seize our own inheritance before God's time that can seem so spiritual and so right, but we have done it ourselves. It is always because we have failed to recognize the greatness of God's holiness and thus the greatness of his mercy to us individually and therein the greatness of his love towards us individually that he could have mercy on us and forgive us. And it is out of that perception with thankfulness and reciprocating that there is the abiding in God. There is the worship of God that allows our motives to only have one thing, and that is to desire the glory of God and nothing for ourselves, no self-glory. I could share a lot more on this, but I will go on. And so the last temptation that Christ goes through in this passage of Scripture, I cannot believe I've been preaching for such a long time. The last temptation that he goes through from the enemy. And Jesus answering said unto him, this is what it's in verse, uh, he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, if thou be the son of God, cast thyself down from thence, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Isn't that amazing? The enemy uses the word of God to convince us to be initiated out of ourselves instead of God, to be initiated out of the enemy's influence upon us, upon our own selves, so that we will initiate things out of what the enemy has suggested. In this case, it was to do an act that was def- that was a very daring act to somehow uh, convince trust in ourselves 
as the source of deliverance. Do something that proves that you are a spiritual man of God, that God can use you now. You need to do something. You need to go on a long fast, then you'll prove that you're a man of God. You need to put yourself in front of some serpent and let it bite you, and then you'll prove you're a man of God. Poisonous serpent. You know that those groups of people that allow snakes to bite them, they, they become immune to it through having them bite them so much. Now, these are not things that are pure motives. These are things that are coming out of self, and whatever we trust in is where we're giving glory. So if we're trusting in self through our own self-initiate, because we're self-initiating these things, not getting it from God, then we deceive ourselves and can convince ourselves and, and build up our pride to think that we are really something and our identity is in ourself rather than in God. I would love to preach a lot longer on this passage. It seems that I've been preaching for a long time. Well, 57 minutes, I will preach a bit longer on it here then for that reason. Um, I experienced in my life a time when God visited me and caused me to see that I was his son. But it wasn't because I was trying to do something, some great deed, through my own self-effort, so that I would think I was something. That only feeds and builds up self. There are many religions that seek to get rid of ego, and they somehow think that when they do that, they're, they're in some great place of power. There are philosophical religions that believe through meditation you can get rid of ego. But all you do is you refine ego beyond the comprehension of the mind and you depersonalize yourself. You become like a robot. You can never crucify yourself. There's always going to be one hand free. In the case of the triunity of the one true God, I could go on to share a lot about this. It says concerning the Messiah in Isaiah 6, 33, verse 5 and 6, and it's very clear, it's speaking of the Messiah, that the Messiah says this, the fear of the Lord, it says concerning the Messiah, the fear of the Lord is his treasure. Why? Because it's out of choosing to fear God, recognize God for who he truly is, and not just from the mind, it's far more, it's a, it's a heart issue, it's a heart thing, it's a thing of worship, it's a thing that involves quality time learning to be still and wait on God and cease from our own self-initiations out of the awe of who God is that brings us to a place of utter humility and utter honesty before God and so that what we are sharing and saying before God is out of a totally pure heart and allows us to be receptive to hear God and do things out of God. 
That's why it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, when thou comest to the house of God, be more ready to hear than to speak presumptuously before God. For God is in heaven and thou upon earth, therefore let thy words be few. Don't be some fool that mutters something before the holy presence of God. Oh, we've lost the fear of God. We've lost what it is, so many of us, to worship God in spirit and in truth. God's calling his people to come into a place of relationship with him where they know an identity in him. And I mentioned that I had the experience, and I can't go into it in depth here. of having a revelation in my own life. But before I do that, I want to explain this Isaiah where the fear of the Lord is his treasure. It's in this sense that the son is always beholding the father and seeing the integrity of his love and the glory of that love that is a consuming fire against anything that would be corrupt. And it is so beautiful because you see it's out of holiness that comes wholeness. For holiness is what contains unlimited life and power in goodness, that is, unlimited life and power without corruption. And the holiness of God is the containment of reality. It is the containment of what is totally whole. It says in the word of God that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And out of wholeness issues beauty and glory. And so the son beholds the father filled with thankfulness and he's filled with reciprocative thankfulness and he says to the father, Father, I love you so much that I want to come to the earth and suffer more than the mere creature and humble myself more than the mere creature so that I can bring to you, Father, so that I can enlarge my love towards you, Father, and my thankfulness by bringing you a corporate bride that you can experience and inherit. And the Father says, Son, I am so filled with adoration and love towards you, Son, that as much as it pains me to let you go, I love you and I want you to inherit a bride and know the blessing of that in communion with me. And so, son, I am willing to allow this to happen so that you can be enlarged and I can be enlarged in love. And there's this continual union of reciprocation, of worship out of the fear of God and the triunity of God itself that can never be broken. It wasn't broken on the cross. Christ trusted the Father to the very end, though he experienced the forsaking of God and his judgment upon him, he held his spirit open like an open hand and trust unto the Father, and that link was never broken. I'm not going to go into it here. And so in my own life, I had a time when I experienced great condemnation because of my own failings and temptation in the flesh, I won't go into that. I never fell into a relationship with a woman, but I, it was enough to condemn me greatly what happened in my thought life and in my habits. And I also experienced 
a great hunger for God. And those two things came to a climax. And I'm not going to explain everything here, but I had the one open vision I ever had in my life in 1975. Because I'd been praying for some weeks before that, that the, I was praying the verse, Lord, you promise that if we keep your commandments, you'll reveal the Son to us. Well, I've had the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but I need the revelation of Jesus. And so I had a revelation of Christ that set me free from the condemnation of the enemy, and the enemy was condemning me greatly to the point that I thought I was like King Saul and this other fellow was going to take my place and I was going to be rejected and never used by God. And it was a terrible torment. And in this, when I had the room filled with light and I saw the holiness of God and the glory of God, I let out a laughter of relief and that verse became so real in my life. In fact, it echoed as a loud voice saying, you are complete in him. And the other verse that came strongly by the Spirit, as a voice, as it were, strongly echoing into my being is, you are now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And I looked at my hands and it was as if I was looking at the hands of Christ. And yet it wasn't, it was my hands. When he said that verse, you are now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And I knew I was his son. I knew I was forgiven. I knew I was free. And it was such a laughter of joy and yet tears flowing with great wailing as well to know that I was his son, that I was forgiven. See, God became real to me personally. I saw the greatness of his mercy to me. My self-initiated ways of seeking to be a godly man were broken. And I knew I was his son. And in this passage of Scripture, this has a great parallel for us as believers in being sent. And you will notice that Christ, after being put through the time of temptation in the wilderness, as many of us have and as the patriarchs have gone through, in order for the word to be purified seven times, Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit. Now, I don't have time to go in to the last part of this passage, except to give what I believe God is saying through this. He goes into the synagogue to the very people that are his own friends, that all they all know him. He used to read in the synagogue. And they're saying, how come he can preach in such a way? These words are so gracious that he's preaching. And they're thinking, wow, we got a great person. We're going to be really feeling proud about this person. Their identity is totally in self-pride and who they are. And they're thinking, oh, now this man is going to make us famous. I mean, that may not be literally the way they were thinking, but it was in their heart. And then the Lord speaks the truth to him, to them, because a prophet doesn't have his identity in the family he's in, in worrying about receiving glory from them or glory from people or acceptance from people. He's dead to those things. A person that's been purified from the world speaks the truth at any price. And so he spoke the truth 
and they couldn't take it. And the reason he spoke the truth is because he knew that what was in them was an identity and self, in the pride of who they were as a people. Instead of in a relationship that was true with God, they became merely religious. And so he spoke the truth that broke their denominational mindset, their self-righteous mindset. They would not receive other people because they felt they were so much the center of everything in relation to God, but had become merely religious. Also, we as believers need to be careful that we have such a fear of God in us, that we esteem others better than ourselves, that we seek to seek the glory of God in others and to see the glory of God in others, that would cause us to be motivated with totally pure hearts, to, as it were, wash one another's feet with the word of God in the assemblies when we share. Most churches nowadays, the members of the body are not functioning in the gifts of the Spirit. And if they are, it's not coming out of true worship. I want to say right here now that God is calling the church to repent. To repent of loving the world that has caused a hardness in the heart that is manifested in the spirit of adultery with the world and with the high rate of divorce in the churches. I want to also say that God is calling the church to repent of idleness, of the gods of amusement that take up their time instead of seeking God in prayer and knowing a far greater pleasure and fulfillment in relationship with God through learning what it is to persevere until there's breakthrough into his presence. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was pride, idleness, and abundance of bread. And this is what causes the hardness in the heart that causes us to be divisive and to form our own shells, corporate shells of worship that are denominations. And God is calling the churches that are in denominational hierarchies that will not be open to other believers to receive them as Christ received us as sinners for Christ. Paul, through the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, said that we're to receive one another as Christ received us. We need to repent. The leadership in churches needs to repent of control that does not allow the members of the body to function in the gifts, that does not facilitate them and encourage them to function in their gifts. The church services need to bear the fruit of repentance by the leadership getting upon their knees and the, calling the whole congregation to get on their knees and their faces in utter awe before God and learning to wait on him and be still and know that he's God and learning to, to pray and to seek him and to worship him. Forget about the pre-service prayer meetings. Make your church service the house of prayer, the place where you get on your face before God and cry out to him until his glory comes down until the pride is broken 
And there's the revelation of his love to you personally and corporately until you are baptized in his love, until the crooked places are made straight and the rough places smooth, and the valleys, those that are dejected, are raised up, and the mountains are brought down. That's why Paul the Apostle said he give, that God gives more abundant honor unto the part that lacks so that there should be no schism in the body of Christ. When there isn't the spirit of control over the body and the body is encouraged to function and to be non-denominational and to give up their programs and be led by the spirit, then what happens is God can bestow more abundant honor on those that are not looked up to so highly. So that those that are looked up to too highly are humbled. So the mountains are brought down and the valleys are raised. So that we're more conscious of Christ in our midst than of the minister. Not that the minister shouldn't minister or that the members of the body should. And when that happens, we will have an, an end-time move of God's Spirit that is greater than Azusa Street, that is greater than the Welsh revival that will conquer our nations, our cities, and our communities for the kingdom of God. And this hour is urgent, for the night comes when no man can work, and the hour of impending judgment is just around the corner. So let us pray that this happens in all of our churches, soon and very soon. God bless you for listening to this message until I share again. Thank you for listening.